Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Namihi nui and welcome to Our Changing World from RNZ National. It's a midweek morning. You're tired, there are piles of clothes mounting up at the end of the bed and on the floor, you've got a meeting at 9.15 and you're running late. What should be your main focus and why? And is it possible to truly multitask? We like to think we open our eyes and we see the world as it is, but a better way to describe it is we open our eyes and we get a whole lot of cues that allow us to build a representation of the world in our head that lets us interact with it. We're all living in a kind of construction fantasy world. That's quite disturbing. Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I'm Sonia Sly, and on Our Changing World, I'm in Auckland to talk to... Paul Corbelis. ...about what's really in front of us and why we don't all see the world exactly as it is. I'm Associate Professor of Psychology at the University of Auckland, and I'm a visual cognitive neuroscientist. Which means that he tries to understand how people process the visual world around them, but it's not as simple as one might think. It turns out to be actually a really interesting and difficult computational problem. Why is that? The pattern of light that falls on the, the retina at the back of the eye is two-dimensional. The real world is three-dimensional. The pattern of light is three-dimensional because it changes in time, but the real world is four-dimensional because it changes in time too. So the problem is mapping a two-dimensional representation onto a three-dimensional representation is what's called an ill-posed problem. So basically um, we're not seeing a true representation of what the world really is. That's right. Or each other, or anything. Hang on. So what am I really seeing? Am I even here? Are you? Are any of us? Are you there, Sonia? I'm over here. Over here. What we're doing is we're, we're taking information from the world, little cues here and there, and we're using that information to create the most likely world or the world that's most useful for us. Does that mean we're all living a lie right now? We're all living a construction and maybe a bit of a lie. The second aspect of what makes visual cognitive neuroscience interesting is there's much more information out there that we can use at any moment. You open your eyes and thousands of, of different stimuli fall on, on your retina. Imagine walking through a busy street in Tokyo for the first time. There are lights flashing, people everywhere and cars passing. So which way do you look and what do you choose to focus on? So that's the $64 million question. What you choose depends on what you want to do. So how you see the world will vary depending on whether you're watching a football game or maybe refereeing that football game. So what you watch as a, as a spectator will be where the ball is, what the referee might watch is what's happening off the ball, what the security guard might watch is what's going on in the crowd. Everybody sees a different thing. So what you see is largely driven by what's happening, bottom-up influences, the stimuli coming in, but also what we call top-down influences, your own goals. Which could be something as simple as... Getting up in the morning and making a cup of coffee. The things that are important to you are the coffee maker and the coffee beans and the coffee grinder and the milk. Once you've had your cup of coffee, those things become unimportant. So sometimes it's 
actual needs. When you're very hungry or very thirsty, food or drink may catch your attention. For most of us, most of the time, it's more about goals. I want to do this. I want to go to work. I, well, need to. <laughs> <laughs> I need to go to work. It isn't always yeah. about what's in the um, foreground that's important, but our but focus can shift to what's in the background. Things that are brightly coloured might pop out from the background or something that's moving, something that's emotional or you know, somehow relevant to your interaction with the people and objects and animals in the world. So does that mean that some people then have a capacity to see more than others? Probably. People do vary in terms of their ability to sort of refocus attention and to suppress things that are distracting. And that's the important key into being able to see more? I think so. That's a theoretical statement that will get me in trouble. It's probably also true that disorders like autism may include an element of insensitivity to some social cues. Probably in the extreme differences between people and how we extract information from the world could be extremely problematic. Even differences in how we extract information not just about other people but about the way things are arranged in space of course could be could be important too. Now while we're on the topic of distractions what's the case when it comes to multitasking? Can we really apply ourselves to many things at once? So we all love to think we can multitask efficiently and in fact It's easy to show that everybody suffers multitasking costs. The more you try and juggle, the worse you are at everything you're doing. So this is why it's a bad thing to talk on your cell phone while you're driving, because not only does your conversation get worse, but so does your driving. The modern world throws a lot of multitasking situations at us, but so does the natural world. And when the modern world collides with the natural world on our film screens, as in the case of Rise of the Planet of the Apes, where the apes become more and more human, we want the faces to be brought to life. The world of CG animation has opened up some interesting findings for Paul. One of his areas of research is facial expressions and looking at the mechanics of how we decode them and for what purpose. So what makes a facial expression believable? facial expression in particular might be a particularly salient source of information. That is, it might bust through our attentional filters more easily than other kinds of information. Facial expressions by themselves are not obviously salient. If you sort of point a digital camera at a scene with faces, if one of them has an expression and the other one doesn't, the camera wouldn't necessarily say, well, that's a salient area of space. But our brains may be particularly tuned to, say, expressions of fear or anger, because they're important social stimuli. If you see somebody who's got an angry expression on their face, maybe that's something you should process quickly so that you can react to that anger. Likewise, if they have a fearful expression on their face, that might suggest that there's something around that you should be scared of and you should run, you should, you should <laughs> run or at least be, you know, increase your alertness level. There's something to this that, that facial expression leads to arousal, which may lead to sort of potentiated processing or faster processing of, of the world. But it's a little bit controversial. We have a problem in in face research in general, which is that it's very hard to achieve what psychologists call stimulus control. If we want to manipulate the expression on faces that we present to people in a lab, we're a bit limited to how we can do it. We can either make cartoon faces, that we can completely control them, but the disadvantage that they're obviously cartoons, or we can rely on photographs of faces but they're either posed expressions by actors, so look a little bit stagey. So they don't always produce the emotional reaction that we would like them to produce. Take, for instance, a digital animation of a face. Yes. Hello. How are you? I'm fine. And you? Thank you. 
What would you like me to do for you today? One thing we've been working a lot to try and solve the stimulus control problem with our colleague from the Auckland Bioengineering Institute, Mark Sager. Mark has built a sort of wonderful facial expression animation, the control of the individual muscles of the face. So you can build animations of facial expression, you can mess with it, you can dampen the expression or weaken it, control individual pieces of it. And one thing we've been exploring a little bit is a phenomenon called the uncanny valley. If you've seen sort of movies with CGI animations of people's faces, you'll often have that, oh, that's weird, reaction to the faces being sort of nearly real but not quite. When we take pictures of faces showing emotions, we can see some physiological signals from the brain that get stronger and stronger as the emotion gets stronger and stronger. When we build the same expressions onto Mark's simulator faces, we see the same thing except that we also see that same emotional signal when the face has no emotion on it at all. That's unusual, isn't it? It is. So this was a big surprise, but I I think it might be a kind of a physiological manifestation of our own emotional reaction to a face that is very nearly real, but not quite. And that's the thing about faces. We naturally have an ability to read body language and make sense of facial expressions. Even babies do it. Can we understand the nuance? Can we understand what it is about a face that creates a sense of anger or a sense of emotion? Certainly our most important visual social stimulus. We're very good at decoding the expression on the face, decoding who that person is, what ethnicity they are, how old they are, whether they're friendly to us, whether they're people we're familiar with. And understanding all those things is important for us to understand how we interact with our visual world probably the most complicated and subtle visual skill we have is reading all that facial expression. There are at least some facial expressions that are pretty common across all cultures. There are others that are probably culturally specific. So we have an enormous problem of trying to understand all this um, and probably a reason for our needing to be such good face perception experts is For us to accurately read one another's emotions, we have to be very sensitive to the ways the skin of the face distorts as the muscles underneath contract and to, in effect, model that in our own selves. You will tend to to mimic or mirror the muscle contractions of a face that you're looking at. No. Sorry. Are you sure you've got the right floor? Paul's research is looking at whether there is a coding scheme to understand an expression space. But why is it important if we instinctively have an understanding of facial expressions anyway? Well, it's necessary for people to be able to decode it so that we can know what one another are thinking. But we wouldn't be here today if we didn't already recognise some of those. So in a way, our brains already decoded. Mm. What we're trying to figure out is how our brains decoded, mostly because we want to know. But in the end, this will, of course, be useful for people like Mark who are creating animations of the face for cross-cultural purposes, in a sense, to understand if one culture has different expression spaces than others, understanding something about how that expression space works. Well, there are people trying to develop these things to use video camera surveillance to detect when maybe they're trying to to disguise their emotions. There's interest in people trying to use these things for lie detection to detect people coming through customs who might be trying to disguise the fact that they're nervous because they're smuggling something through the border. I think we're still at the stage of trying to understand how it all works. What's one of the most fascinating findings so far from any of that research? Less trying to understand the face itself, but the face in the context of our visual interaction with the world. So I think something that's that's interesting 
faces and facial expressions maybe particularly are as powerful a sort of mover of visual attention as a bright flashing light in the periphery. So we've known for years that bright flashing lights are important to attract attention. It seems so do threatening, angry faces or fearful faces in ways that that can't be explained by their simple physical properties. It must be a psychological interaction with the image that's driving that. There's so much stimuli everywhere, and Paul's goal is to try and make sense of how we use that information to control our behaviour. A profound individual difference that determines a lot of outcomes in, in life may have to do with your ability to sort of resist distraction from stimuli in the world, whatever they are, whether they're intrusive thoughts or salient stimuli or emotional signals from other people. Your ability to sort of filter that out and just maintain focus predicts a lot of outcomes that are maybe a bit surprising. So outcomes that are not just whether you manage to succeed in your goal for the, for the moment relate to things like educational outcomes and career success and a whole lot of sort of lifespan outcomes seem to map back on to this, this ability to stay focused. And that ability to stay focused seems to be a, largely determined by your ability to filter distraction. We're working at the coalface trying to really understand filtering distraction at a very fundamental physiological level, but it may have sort of implications that cascade through somebody's whole life. And if that turns out to be true, then that gives us a, a place to focus in terms of how we create educational interventions or clinical interventions or even just understand our own fundamental limitations. Thanks to Sonia Sly for that story. And thanks too to Paul Corbelis from the University of Auckland. Thanks for listening to this Our Changing World podcast. Check out our webpage for photos and web features. rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. Kia ora mai. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A. FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.